Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon. This is the Executive Girlfriends group call for Friday, August 26, 2011, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald, the founder of the Executive Girlfriends group, and my guest today is Patrice Tanaka, and she is the author of a very, very unique book called Becoming Ginger Rogers, How Ballroom Dancing Made Me a Happier Woman, a Better Partner, and a Smarter CEO. Welcome, Patrice. Thank you, Chickie. I'm delighted to be here today. Patrice, why don't we start off uh, by you giving us just a little bit of your personal background and, and how you came to write this book. Okay. Well, my name is Patrice Tanaka, and I'm the co-chair and chief creative officer and what can be ambassador for a mid-sized PR and marketing firm called CRT Tanaka, we're Richmond-based, and but I'm in our New York office. Um, I I started. Um, I, I guess the whole book was prompted by um, the fact that I had discovered a late life passion for ballroom dancing. I started dancing at age 50, my first dance lesson ever. I always wanted to dance, but just never got around to it. So at age 50, I started taking lessons, and then I become you know, obsessed and passionate and hooked on ballroom <laughs> dancing. And after a few years, that's my nature anyway, after a few years I realized there were so many lessons that I was learning through my dancing that seemed to have application way beyond the dance floor. So then I started thinking about, well, maybe I should write a book about the lessons that I've been learning from ballroom dance that have application in the rest of my personal life and in my business life too. So that's how I started uh, writing the book. Wonderful. So this is actually your first book. It's my first, yes. Oh, congratulations. That That is uh, a, definitely a labor of love. I, I've written a number of them, and each time oh, I tell my friends to remind me never, you know, if I ever say <laughs> I'm going to write another book, just to take a hammer to my head right then. But <laughs> uh, Yeah, I, I just, uh, you know, having a full-time job and trying to write a book, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it I don't think is. I'll do that again anytime soon. <laughs> well, never say never because uh, you know, yeah. quite a lot uh a lot of the time, you know, people are touched in in ways that you can't imagine uh by your book and and I know for me it really changed the course of my consulting career, which is is my primary uh business or has been my primary business. It's about to shift. Well, let's start this way. Um, you have, have got just some really intriguing chapter titles. And so I would like for you to give us just, you know, kind of some snippets uh, from each of the chapters of just what it, what the gist of it was all about. But first, who who did you think about when you wrote this book? Who was going to be the reader? I actually thought about women like me, women frankly, boomer women or maybe women in their, you know, mid to late 40s and above, um, women who maybe spent 
the past 20, 30 years, you know, taking care of everyone else, their children, their husbands, their co-workers, if they were trying to build a business, their business partners, you know, everything externally focused on everyone else. And, you know, the, the thing that got forgotten in all of this is, you know, us, ourselves. And, and then we find ourselves at, you know, in our 40s or 50s or older, just totally exhausted, burnt out, and totally kind of unexcited about our own lives because we have nothing left because we've given it all away. And so my ballroom dancing really helped me to reclaim my life, and that's what the book is about. And that's, you know, and and there was a process to this, which I wasn't aware of at the time, but in retrospect, I could see what I did. Um, And so this book is dedicated to other women like, like me, and I know there are countless others um, who maybe feel a little guilty if they do anything for themselves because they really think that they should be taking care of everyone else. And my um, my advice is that you cannot sustain that, you know, over the long haul. Um, in order to keep giving to everyone else, you have to give to yourself first. So, well, I, I find it uh, a, a tad bit poignant that your first chapter is the whirl of Manhattan. And since we are uh, following the swirling trail of Irene as she comes up the East Coast, even as we speak, we're hoping that she won't be the whirl of Manhattan. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that chapter. Okay. Uh, well, there are nine chapters in my book, and the first one, yes, is entitled The Whirl of Manhattan because it starts off with, you know, and I should say that my book is kind of a hybrid of three things. It's a personal memoir of my having been born and raised in Hawaii and all my life wanting to move to Manhattan, and so it's about that personal journey. It's also about uh, a glimpse into the world of competitive uh, pro-am uh, ballroom dancing. And finally, it's about lessons that I've learned from ballroom dancing that have application in business. So the this book includes a lot of uh the a lot of the campaigns that I've worked on over the years uh that you know were uh concurrent with the time I was taking uh ballroom dancing and affected actually, you know, the the work that that I did at that time because of my ballroom dancing. So the right. first, uh, so the chapter one opens with actually the, the launch that we did of Dyson vacuums in America. And we actually, you know, prior to Dyson, and I think a lot of people know Dyson vacuums, they really did revolutionize uh, the vacuum cleaner category because prior to Dyson, vacuums were, were what we called a, a low interest category. Nobody was interested <laughs> yeah. in vacuum cleaners. The media wasn't interested in covering this category so but the Dyson however in its technology and in its design is distinctively different and very exciting in terms of product so we wanted to launch it in a way that really brought this new vacuum to the attention of design influentials and and people in the fashion world who we thought would be struck by the appearance of the vacuum and the power of the vacuum. So we decided to launch it in an unusual way and launch it 
at Fashion Week in New York in right. September 2002 because there are 50,000 design and fashion world influentials who attend Fashion Week. And so we thought it would be cool if we launched it by having Dyson uh, appear on the runway of one of the edgier designers at Fashion Week. Uh, so that's what this chapter one is about. Um, and, we, and I talk about the fact that... Um, you know, this this happened in September 2002, which is a year after September 9/11, um, right. the year before. And so, in a way, this Dyson launch and the excitement, and it was a very successful launch uh, with media coverage all you know globally. Um, it provided us with distractions from the one-year anniversary stories about 9/11, right. which actually was the impetus for me getting involved with ballroom dancing, and I'll get it into that later. Interesting. Uh, but the chapter also talks about my growing up in Hawaii and always dreaming of, of dancing like Ginger Rogers because I lived in this make-believe world of the films from the 1930s and 40s. And, you know, I wanted to live in, in Manhattan and go to the Stork Club every evening and wear evening gowns all day long and talk on white telephones. You know, that was my <laughs> oh, image of Manhattan. Phone, no doubt. <laughs> right. And dancing like Ginger and Fred and Top Hat, that was my vision of Manhattan. So I was a very unhappy young uh, girl growing up in Hawaii because I thought I was born in totally the wrong place and time. Um, and then the, that chapter also talks about my the starting my PR career as a PR director of a beautiful resort, the Intercontinental Maui in Wailea. And then I kind of race forward talking about the tremendous evolution of PR since I first began practicing uh, in the late 1970s, where at the time state-of-the-art meant the IBM Selectric typewriter, and right. you know, so much has changed in our world, in our, you know, in in our industry, PR marketing, um, you know, especially the past seven years, seven to ten years, with um, the rise of social media and mobile telecommunications, um, that it's really changed the way that we practice PR. So, so the chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so chapter two is the Arabian Prince. So who would that yes. be? Actually, that is where my hus my late husband Asadullah Hakik, um, enters the picture, and you know he I called him Mr. Sweetheart, and he used to call me Mrs. Sweetheart. He was uh, from Afghanistan, and I laid eyes on him one evening when I walked into this Greek restaurant, which was right next door to my um, my, my former job. And when I spotted him, it was just like in you know TV, uh, like in a film, where the, the lights went down, the music came up, and <laughs> there was a spotlight on him, and all I could see was him. And I knew, I recognized him. It was one of those feelings. And he looked like he stepped out of the Arabian Nights, very drop-dead gorgeous, um, kind of. He's from Afghanistan. He was born there. The reason he was in New York at the time was the Russians had invaded Afghanistan in 79. And so, long story there, but he eventually petitioned to come to the U.S. as a refugee, and and that's why he was working at that restaurant. He was going to school, trying to complete his engineering degree and and working as a waiter there. So, anyway, um, yeah. So, (laughs) uh, five years later, we got married. But it was a very tumultuous um, 
courtship and relationship because he was having such guilt because his parents, Muslim parents in Afghanistan, assumed they would be finding him a nice Afghani girl as his wife oh, and sending her to him. So he was afraid to tell them about me for fear he would, they would disown him. So they didn't even know that we got married when we did in 87 and didn't learn about it until 1991 when he was able to meet them in Mecca. He arranged for them to go on a hajj. You know, all Muslims go right. there once in their life. So anyway, so and it just talks about the fact that, you know, just before our marriage he had a seizure and then um, he was, determined afterwards that he had a brain tumor, which he actually, over the time, um, had for 17 years um, and had three surgeries. And uh, it was, you know, um, by the year, uh, and because of all the medication that he was on, he had lost his libido, so that mean, meant we had no sex since, like, 1996. And then I had, um, following his brain tumor operation in 89, I had uh, about with early-stage ovarian cancer in 91. And then in 93, I had was determined that I had DCIS and had to have a mastectomy on, on my left breast. So, I mean, between the wow. two of us, it was like we were in the hospital constantly. Um, so uh, it, it, I was, you know, a caregiver to him at, towards the end. And about 2000, he was having serious cognitive deficits. So, you know, he needed a lot of help just kind of navigating, you know, uh, the day kind of thing. He mm. wasn't working at all. So my role had gone, in by 2002, I, you know, instead of being his wife and his soulmate and his his, his, his lover, I was kind of chief caretaker, nag, cook, and breadwinner. And I was like right. totally exhausted by that. And then on the other hand, it, in my business life, I had co-founded a PR agency in 1990. I actually led a group of colleagues in a management buyback from Cheyenne Day, a big advertising agency, right. to start a PT and company. And I tried to run it. Um, you know, there were 12 of us, 13 um of us who owned the agency. So we were all owners and co-founders. And I tried to run it in a kind of uh, consensus-style management instead of uh, what I should have done, a more consultative-style management. So anyway, that was fraught with a lot of, you know, uh, challenges as well, um, just trying to work together as colleagues and co-owners. So <laughs> the chapter ends with me asking God, surely this can't be it for me because, I mean, I wasn't even feeling, uh, I was totally burnt out. I didn't even feel like any kind of desirable woman. I was trapped right. uh, in a marriage. I mean, I love my husband, but I was like a caregiver. And then at yeah. work, I was trying to make peace so that we could actually, you know, run our business. So it was just, I was wow. not so, happy. So then the title of the next chapter makes uh -huh. so much more sense to me now, which is yeah. what brings you joy? It's the question what? of... Of you know, and, and if if that were answered under different circumstances, you know, it would just be uh, you know just conversational. But now in that context, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, when we this is at the time when we were planning the Dyson launch. So it was in early 2002. 
that I noticed that one of my partners, Evelyn, uh, seemed very cheerful and energetic and clear thinking, and she was always efficient, but even more so. And I was in the doldrums because I really was haunted by those nearly 3,000 people who died on 9-11 because I kept thinking about what, uh, I mean, you don't go to work and not expect to come home. And so I wondered in the moments before they died whether they were good to go, you know, whether they could say, well, you know, I lived a good life and I did what I wanted to do, and so I can go, you know, in with some amount of peace and grace. Right. And I, I was haunted by that. So when I, I, Evelyn told me she had started working with an executive coach, and that's why she was in a pretty good place. So I started working with that same coach. And in working with her, her first uh, uh, assignment was that I had to articulate my purpose in life. And I was like inwardly groaning because I didn't really have the energy to even like blue sky think about what my purpose in life was. I was just trying to get through the day every day. And so finally when I thought about it, and again informed by the nearly 3,000 people who died on 9-11, I thought, you know, I need to come up with a purpose that would allow me to be good to go if I was ever in that situation like those people on right. 9-11. So after a lot of thought, I, I said to her, you know, Suzanne, uh, this is what I could come up with that I could even, uh, you know, believe in to, right now. So I said, my purpose in life is to choose joy in my life every day, to be mindful of that joy, and to share that joy with others. And as soon as I finished, she said, so what brings you joy? So without even thinking, I I said, dancing. And she said, oh, great. So when was the last time you went dancing? And when I couldn't (laughs) remember or think of it, she said, oh, okay, so your homework assignment is to book yourself a dance lesson. So that's kind of how I got started into the dancing. Yeah. Wow. So so the next chapter is Samba Girl. So was that your first dance that you learned? (laughs) Well, actually, I went to the studio, the Pierre Dulane Dance Studio, to to take a lesson. And the first lesson they always teach beginners is the Foxtrot because it's the easiest one to teach. And so I'm doing the Foxtrot, trying to follow along, and I'm noticing another couple dancing something that looks like a lot of fun, like I would want to dance. And so I said, oh, can I? Can we do that dance? And that was a samba. And Pierre said, no, that's much more advanced than what you're able to do right now. Uh, but if you continue, maybe at some point, you know, you can do the samba. So that chapter, uh, Samba Girl, it talks about after I had been taking lessons for a few months at Pierre Dulane, uh, with my dance teacher Tony Shepler, who's gorgeous, six foot four, drop dead, mat- like matinee idol, gorgeous. Um, he kept after me to dance this, what he called a showcase, and so I wasn't paying attention to him. But finally, to just shut him up, I said, "Okay, what is the showcase?" And he said, "Well, it's kind of like a dance recital for family and friends." So I burst out laughing. I said, "I'm not." dancing in front of family and friends and strangers and but then he says to me yes but if you do the dance uh, you know well, I guess I must have said to him so what would I do if I dance a showcase and he said well I could choreograph a special samba routine for for you <laughs> 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 my attention so then of course I was like 
oh, I want to do the samba. I want to learn the samba. So, okay, I'll do the showcase. So, you know, and then when I realized what I had gotten myself into, I realized, oh, my God, I've got to take more lessons because, uh, you know, to not embarrass myself. So that's why the, the chapter is called Samba Girl. And it is my favorite dance. And it's just the dance of joy, I call it. It really does mm. bring a smile to your face if you do oh, it. Cool. So the next one uh, is the tango. And, and the the uh, chapter is the ballroom world and the real world. And when you when you started out with your introduction about mm-hmm. why you wrote the book is that you did realize that there was a strong correlation between what you were learning uh, in yes. in the dance and and how it related back to your real world. So tell us right. about that. Um, well, the ballroom world and the real world um, really actually um, talks. I always jokingly say there's the real world and there's the ballroom world. And uh, and in the ballroom world, I say it's perfectly acceptable to wear um, rhinestone. Uh, and have your hair elaborately done and in full makeup for breakfast, you know, and and wearing gowns at breakfast because that's what happens at a ballroom competition. There's dancing from 8 in the morning till past midnight every day of this competition, and they take place at hotels, and sometimes you don't leave the hotel for the entire duration of the competition, whether it's two days or seven days. So you're in, like, this uh, uh, bubble, and so, like, characterize that as the, the ballroom world and then the real world of course is everyday life but yes you're correct that there are a lot of um things lessons that apply outside of the ballroom world in everyday life and i guess one of the biggest ones for me and i think for a lot of women you know I don't know if it afflicts women more than men, but we sometimes want to be perfect and do things perfectly and do our jobs perfectly. And we fear failure and fear doing things imperfectly. And so I, and that's the way I operated in business world, you know. In fact, I had this horrible but accurate uh, uh, nickname that one of my colleagues uh, uh conferred upon me. He called me Ayatollah Tanaka because I was (laughs) incensed by sloppy thinking and sloppy work. And really, I did have an off with with their heads attitude about that. So, and because I was so afraid of imperfection and and failure that um, I really went overboard um, in that. And what I learned in ballroom uh, is that in the dance studio, you know, it's a wide open floor and everybody's practicing side by side, professionals and amateurs, and everybody's focused on what they're doing. They're really not paying attention to what you're doing. And I'm somebody who, because I don't want to look imperfect or execute things imperfectly, I was mortified that I had to practice out in the open with everybody watching me, you know, make mistakes. And then I realized, you know, dancers don't even consider improving their dancing as uh, improving their failures. They look at it as just continual improvement. And they don't even look as at perfection as a destination. It's more a direction. So it's like they never think that they'll achieve perfection. It's all about trial and error, trying to improve and continually improve, and that's all that there is. Um, and so that was a revelation to me, and that I kind of started to take into my business life, uh, that, you know, it's about just 
you know, con- uh, building on your success. Uh, and failure, if, if to even use that word, was just about, it was just a stepping stone to success. Well, and that, that leads obviously into your next chapter, which actually was about uh, actually practicing failing. And it's funny because when I first looked mm-hmm. at it, I don't have my reading glasses on it. It looks mm-hmm. like practicing falling, <laughs> which I thought yeah, might have yeah. been appropriate fact, if I, you were doing I, dips. But, yeah, uh, same thing. It could work that way too. Yeah, just, uh, you know, Marianne Nicole, who's a very famous uh ballroom champion, ex-champion, and and judge at these competitions said to me, because I interviewed a number of people in the ballroom world, she said, if I fail, I'm not a failure. She said, dancing allows you to experiment with different ways to succeed. That was a real aha to me. Mm. So, you know, I came to view the ballroom studio as a laboratory, kind of a fun and safe place where I could practice failing. Um, And before ballroom, I used to, you know, I was always a creative director of my then agency, PT and Company, and my current agency, CRT Tanaka. But I used to brainstorm a lot it alone in my head, you know, all over the place, not just in the office. In fact, mostly out of the office, in the shower, just before I went to bed, when I got up, you know. And I would perfect an idea until it met certain criteria before I would even, you know, offer it up in a meeting, in a brainstorm. And I realized that, you know, that's not the way that dancers do it. I mean, they're like experimenting in the uh, openly. And so I started realizing that in my being so uh, constrained, it was really constraining everybody else and, and not unleashing the creativity of everyone um, so that we could build on each other's ideas and and create something maybe even bit better than what I could think of on my own. So that was one of the things that um, um, uh, you know, one of the the, the lessons. Yeah, um, and you know, I really love that. And and uh, it's funny because I, I had a call earlier with uh, with Patty and one of our other business partners in a new venture that we're doing. And um, one of the things that I love uh, and. Ha- is being able to share my failures, but you know, again, I I wrote down your your statement of experimenting openly with different ways mm-hmm. to succeed. But you know, we were trying, uh, you know, to kind of collaborate today about something, and you know, we're using all of the traditional collaboration tools electronically. And I thought, you know, being able to actually physically all be together would be such a luxury. Mm-hmm. And our, one of our partners is, uh, lives between LA and San Diego, and um, you know, being able to actually talk through. And, and, of course, you can't dance remotely. You know, you can't. The the whole thing about dance is the connection, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the things about technology in our world is is that we can't do the dance in the same way, you know, the, the business dance. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I think technology has kind of expanded our abilities to collaborate, but at the same time, it's kind of constrained some of the uh, the nuances of collaboration, I think. Right. Because there's nothing like, you know, sitting next to someone or sitting right across from someone and seeing in their eyes, you know, the, their energy or, or, or their lack of energy yes. or, you know, where they get excited or not, you know, in terms of, you know, ideation. So, yeah, I agree. 
So your next chapter is about partnering for success in the ballroom and in the boardroom, and uh, you uh, talk about the mambo here. <laughs> yeah, the mambo is has always been and continues to be my most treacherous dance, and I have I had my most mortifying moments doing the mambo, um, where it's difficult because you dance on the two beats, so you have to wait before you can do your first step. And sometimes the music in mambo is so cacophonous that it's hard to hear uh, the music to, to much less be able to dance on the right beat. So I'm always fearful when I have to do the mambo because I'm not sure if the music is going to be one that I can hear and then if I can, whether or not I'm going to be able to dance on the right beat. So uh, I've had many disasters in mambo. And finally, uh, at one competition, um, I decided I was just getting too stressed out. So I said to my teacher, Emmanuel, who is, and to top it off, he's the world mambo champion. So whenever I'm on the floor with him, everybody's watching us because he's such a great dancer, especially in the mambo, my worst dance. So I said to him, Emmanuel, I have an idea. Maybe I should not have a routine for my mambo. I have a set routine for all the other five dances I compete with him in. But I said, I, you know, you always tell me that, to dance well, I need to be fully present, mind, body, and spirit, and dance in that moment, and dance full out and fearlessly. And I can't because I'm worried about, you know, my routine. So if I didn't have a routine, it would require me to have to be in the moment and follow you because I don't know what you're going to do. I would I have to do that. He said, okay, let's try it. So we tried it for the first time ever, and I was shocked that I actually danced the mambo six times and won six first places. That has never happened to me wow. in my life. And I, it was the most thrilling thing because I wasn't nervous about, you know, uh, messing up my routine because I didn't have a routine to mess up. All I needed to do was stay present and you know, follow his lead because that's one of the big lessons in that I've learned from ballroom dancing. Probably the most important lesson, which is wow. Well, that one's amazing the, because that that does yeah. speak to letting the strength on your team rise mm -hmm. and following yes. along. And and again, I'm I'm starting into a new venture where I don't know anything about the industry. It's it's the media business, and and Patty and my other partner Lori. Um, you know, have both been in the media business for a long time, and I'm trying to learn the lingo. And, you know, I understand distribution because that's where I came from, but I came out of the travel industry, so it's like a whole different thing. And it's like you, you know, uh, you yeah. were good at the other dances and felt comfortable, and I just have to follow the lead of my partners who are expert. And I have to tell you just a quick story, and then I know we need to, to wind up. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Many, many years ago, I was going to hear a band in New Orleans because I was going to hire them uh, for a, a customer conference that we were having at my company. And I flew into New Orleans, and I went, uh, I checked in at my hotel, and uh, kind of as an aside, they, they were having a tattoo convention at the hotel, which uh, <laughs> I was just totally out of my element to begin with. So then I go mm -hmm. down, and, and the band was actually playing on a riverboat, and so I was like this interloper coming into this conference, and it turned out to be a doctor's conference. 
And, uh, you know, I went in and tried to, you know, kind of sit in the back and, and you know, didn't want to uh, hone in on dinner or anything. So, but uh, it was obviously quite a lot of men because it was a, a, a very, it was one of the specialties. I don't even remember now what it was, but it wasn't just, you know, general practitioners. And um, at one point when the band started to play and they were really good, this guy came up to ask me to dance, and he was this absolutely gorgeous doctor. And I'm thinking, hmm, this could be interesting, but I wasn't a good dancer. But I'll tell you what, the floor cleared, and all I could do was follow because he was so amazing. And so it was the same kind of experience that I had no training in what I was doing at all. But, I mean, like everybody literally cleared the floor and just clapped and clapped and clapped. And, oh, my God. I mean, so you it was really just, were in the moment following. I was for totally in the moment. I couldn't be anywhere <laughs> else. Um, well, let's just wrap up by uh, the last uh, or next to the last chapter is you must be present to win, going with the flow and celebrating success along the way. And clearly you just told us that story about being present. So so talk to me about that. Being present. Yeah. I think in dancing, the only um, way that you can dance well is to be present, fully present, mind, body, and spirit because dance is a very physical act, but it's also one that you have to focus on with your mind, and you have to put more than just mind and body into it. It's a spiritual, you know, um, uh, dance as well. And your only guarantee of a successful future is producing your present step full out and fearlessly, because that's what produces your next step or a good next step or your future. And if you get hung up in the misstep you just made, which is your past, then it's going to screw up your present step. And by and in screwing up your present step, that's going to screw up your future. So in a way, it's a great metaphor for the only safe place to be in life, on the dance floor or in business, is fully present. And I think that by being fully present, mind, body, and spirit, and using that approach in business, you can get a lot more information uh, in a meeting than you can if you're only listening with your mind um, you know, or operating in one realm, just the mental realm. You know, you're just more powerful operating mind, body, spirit. So mm. I think that uh, I think communication is, is more effective. You can create stronger connections, and you can certainly partner more successfully with others if you are fully present and you can read uh, signals and get information and see, you know, how people are responding on, on many levels to what you're saying, and you can adjust accordingly uh, depending on, on that intake. But if you're not paying attention, you, you're operating with, you know, less than half the knowledge uh, that you need to make the right decision. Oh, I love that, Patrice, particularly since I am, um, you know, I'm I'm a multitasker of the highest order, and it, it <laughs> and I, I think probably I I am a little bit ADD, and in, in that I I have a hard time staying. Well, oh, you're not alone. A lot of us are, and I count myself there too. I have to catch myself. Yeah, um, and a, a few years ago, somebody gave me the book, The Present, which has a picture yeah. of a like a a birthday or a Christmas present on the front, but it's talking about what an amazing gift it is to the people around you to yeah. be in the present and to pay attention and not to worry over overly worry about either the future or the impact of the past. So let's wrap up right. with uh, appropriately the last chapter, which is called What Can Be 
leading with your heart. And the dance for this one is the cha-cha. <laughs> yeah, well, part of the, uh, you know, I said that I had led a management buyback from Shia Day in 1990 to start my first agency, PT and Company, and I had that for 15 years, and we, you know, we earned a lot of recognition, number one most creative PR agency in the country, number two best place to work. Among all PR agencies, we won nearly 200 awards, but my focus on doing great work at the expense of running a profitable business was not a good thing for the agency. Again, everything was limited by my own uh, uh, strengths and non-strengths. So we we decided the only way to grow um, was we had to sell to another agency, and so we ultimately sold sold to a a Richmond, Virginia-based agency, Carter Riley Thomas, who we had been working with informally for some time. And I fell in love with these guys, especially Mark Raper, the CEO, who uh, is this big, expansive, optimistic, um, what-can-be type guy. I mean, you know, he just always thinks about, you know, the future possibilities of what what can be. And so we decided to sell to them, create CRT Tanaka, and build an agency on the brand vision and brand promise of what can be, pretty much whatever you can think Mm. you can do. And that is what uh, our agency is about. And and I guess one of the examples of what can be is this: writing this book and doing the ballroom dancing is certainly my own personal what can be. It doesn't have to do with uh, the work that I do at the agency. However, all the lessons that I've learned have certainly made me much more effective, you know, at work. But the my agency CRT Tanaka has actually supported me in the writing of this book um, by actually. Co-funding uh, the is a book proposal, and I have a team at the agency here who are helping me with the publicity. And they've my our interactive department created a beautiful website and everything. Oh, so wonderful! That's what that chapter is about. It's about you know it, for all the, and that's why I think it's one of the we can't view. Um, uh, I, I view failure as a stepping to, stone to success because, frankly, if I hadn't, we hadn't succeeded as well as we had with my previous agency and failed as as well as we had with my previous agency, we would never have sold to Carter Riley Thomas to create an even bigger agency because my former agency was four million dollars. Uh, this agency is twelve, and we're on our way to about twenty. So, it's a much bigger, more successful, mid-sized PR and marketing agency. So, in a way, it, it, this is another example of not viewing any past um, experiment. And I always used to call my first agency as a grand social science experiment. Um, <laughs> it's just you know experimenting through trial and error to to improve uh, the outcome. So. Uh, this this CRT Tanaka is uh, uh, the latest step in in that in that process of experimenting. Wow. Well, Patrice, thank you so so much for sharing your story, and uh, we may have to talk to you on on a professional front um, about our our new business. So maybe I'll give you a, a call uh, cool. after after the hurricane has uh, oh, subsided yeah. and and you're 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 back in business. Yeah, let's hope it's a non-event. 
I hope so, too. We've had a lot of those here in Florida. So, um, like I said, um, you know, they they usually aren't as bad as the media plays it up. It's, you know, they, they, uh, I guess everybody's tired of politics, so they they needed to make this into, like, the the hurricane of the century. But, um, uh, to distract from our other real problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but you know, do be careful. And uh, I, uh, I, I know Patty has your phone number, so I will give you a call uh, to talk okay, about business next week because right. I would love to hear a little bit more about your approach. And uh, Patrice, just have a fabulous uh, weekend, and uh, I look oh. forward to getting to know you better. Me too. Thank you, Chicky and Patty. I really appreciate being on uh, today's show. All right, terrific. And uh, Patty will make sure that you get a copy of the uh, the MP3, and we will be posting this on Blog Talk Radio uh, before the weekend is out. Patty uh, generally gets it uh, posted sometime uh, on Saturday or Sunday. And uh, we will, like I said, we will make sure to connect because we are launching a new very, very exciting business. And uh, I like the way you think, and uh, maybe I'll learn how to ballroom dance out of all of this. Hey, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Patrice. And I am going to turn off the recording now, and I see uh, one of my good buddies is on the line. Hang on one second. Let me turn this off. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 